0: Hi, this is Josh from Richmond, Virginia. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio
1: Sweetheart
0: It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Before we hear from my old pal John Hodgman, here he is in a recent appearance on The Daily Show.
1: John, writing a book is the most important thing a human being can do. Not only do books pass knowledge on to future generations, they're also an important check on the rampant growth of trees. But literary immortality comes with a price, book promotion. The demeaning ritual known as the television appearance, where the solitary genius is forced to hold conversation with the likes of... Well, what's your title again, John, Master of Ceremonies, or a Comedy Barker? I'm the the host of the program. No, no, that's not it. Oh, yes, Cable Jester. (laughs) But as unpleasant as these interactions are, there are some important tips for new authors on how best to sell your own work. Well, how how would you start? Oh, John, it has already begun. (laughs) Remember my high-energy walkout? Look, is this really necessary? Can't we just have a conversation about the book that you've written? Well, did oh, you, Did you read my book, John? I did. Oh Well, what did, what did you think? I, I thought it was... Fascinating? Uh... Yes. Why am I not surprised? Why aren't you? Roll the tape, John. This is a a fascinating book. It's fascinating stuff, really fascinating book. Always uh, fascinating. It's a really fascinating book. I edited that together to make you look foolish. It's not really very fair. Really? How, How does your own medicine taste? Fascinating?
0: It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, John Hodgman, is a famous minor television personality and author. His new book of all world knowledge is called More Information Than You Require. He's also the resident expert on The Daily Show. Uh, John, welcome back to The Sound of Young America.
1: I am also... Thank you very much. It's fine to be here. I am also the judge...
0: You're the judge on Jordan, on Jordan Jesse, Jesse Go, uh, another program offering from MaximumFun.org. In that, in that guys, you are known as Judge John Hodgman. Judge
1: John Hodgman. Did I'm you, not actually a judge, did but you I, like, I'm very judgmental.
0: One of our listeners uh, made a painting of you mm-hmm. as
1: in your judicial robes. Did yeah. you appreciate that? I did very much. I did. I don't actually have any judicial robes, so it was nice to have a, a little thought picture of what I would look like if I...
0: Well, audio is, the, is the, they call it the theater
1: of the mind. I just have a gendarme's cape that I wear Oh, when I'm being Judge John Hodgman, and um, let's face it, it's not the same.
0: You're having way too much fun on this program.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, not many people have been asking me to solve disputes lately, Jesse, and I'd like to know what's going on. Are there fewer disputes in the world?
0: Uh, I, well, you know, I don't know if you've heard that there's change coming in our politics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a time of reconciliation. People are being brought together. Yeah. Um, I think that
1: might be what's happening. Either that or people are scared that you'll judge them. I hope that people, you know, first of all, I hope you're not protecting me.
0: You? I hope that
1: it's, I hope there's not a situation where people have legitimate disputes with their roommates or the other sorts of like romantic disputes that I've solved before and you're like, no, Hodgman is too busy now. He has a new book of complete world knowledge out. John, I hope I th- that's not what's happening.
0: I think that the reason why uh, we've had a hard time finding disputes for you, for uh, our other program, Jordan, Jesse, Go, is that it's difficult. It, it, it'll take, take, for example, the People's Court, Judge Wapner. Mm-hmm. They offer remuneration to both parties in the dispute irrespective of
1: the decision right, um so in, in the in the form of being on television,
0: no, in the form of cash a, money
1: America, a powerful gift, um, and
0: all we can offer them is the the marginal fame that comes with having appeared on the podcast and the mm. chance to talk to one of their favorite pseudo judges. Um, right. so I think the challenge is getting often there will be one party that's very excited about participating in a judgment by an unqualified uh, minor television
1: well, personality uncredentialed. I suppose you could say
0: uh, in in but often the other party is not it's, this is a problem that comes up consistently
1: Yeah, the oh, other party is not interested exactly. Well, give me their number and I'll convince them to have a fair <laughs> hearing <laughs> good in the court of Hodge <laughs> well, I'm glad you've worked up a system. Well, I'm just saying, you know I, I I like helping people and I miss my opportunity when I can't tell people what to do and who's right and who's wrong That's something that gives me great pleasure John, this is your second book of all world knowledge. That's correct.
0: Um, when we last spoke, uh, you had written the first. I believe it was it had just come out in paperback That's was the right. last time you mm-hmm. were on the program. Yes. We discussed the fact that it is in some ways a bold move uh, to write a, a, a second book after
1: claiming that your first book represented the totality of its subject. Well, yes. I mean, and people wondered about that. They wanted to know how could complete world knowledge be contained in a book that is only 236 pages long. And the answer was very simple. I was lying. Oh, (laughs) I had no idea. I was exaggerating for comic effect. The reality is there is more knowledge out there. And even if I had captured all of complete world knowledge in the first book... In the time that since it's been published, more knowledge has been generated, and I have learned some of it.
0: Do you see? And your... I've
1: made up the rest. Do you see yourself as knowledge's captor? Yes, I am. I am. I. I. I am like somebody who wears a pith helmet and carries a butterfly net, and I'm constantly grasping at knowledge, for about uh, fifteen minutes a day. And Grab then... some knowledge, ether it, pin it down. Exactly. Well, I put it in a killing jar.
0: Oh, good. <laughs> You you spent a lot of time with like the Book of Lists, mm-hmm. um, other classic tomes of sort of. Well, uh, I should
1: say the Book of Lists was a big influence on my my first book, but not really on my second.
0: So what were the what were the new influences upon your second book? What did you what did from what um, did you draw?
1: The Book of Lists two. Gotcha. The <laughs> sequel. <laughs> the sequel to the Book of Lists, the Book of Lists number two, I think is technically the 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 answer. The Book of Lists, you know, was itself an offshoot of another project, which I didn't learn. I mean, I was always a fan of the Book of Lists. And the Book of Lists, as you know, was written by um, or compiled largely by a family, a father and a son and a daughter. Did I know that? I don't think I knew that. Oh, no. It's, yeah. So it was um, Irving Wallace and his son, David Walachinsky, who had he Wallace was obviously an, an Americanized name. And so he had un-Americanized it. And uh, Amy Wallace was the sister. And they worked together uh, to create the book of lists was a massive bestseller upon which a a large part of my original book was based this sort of compendia of lists of, um, you know, European uh, rulers who had died while, you know, having sex, something like that, you know, Um, and a lot of sort of crypto knowledge about Sasquatch and um, popular culture knowledge and that sort of thing, all in these handy list formats and People would send in lists, and um, it quickly became sort of a playful enterprise where people would send in their own lists, and then they would publish them in the next volume, Book of List Two, et cetera. What I hadn't realized until I had started sort of revisiting these books, these favorite books of my youth, was that they were an offshoot of another book, which was called The People's Almanac, which was an even bigger, thicker book full of essentially complete world knowledge. It was like 1,000, 1,500 pages long, and on, you know, such subjects as diverse as uh, who is not only who is in charge of uh, countries all over the world, but who is really in charge, you know, the titular heads and then who really controls the power. And it was a product of the 70s. And there was a lot of skepticism about power at that time. Um, so, for example, when they would list who who is really in charge among the great institute, uh, the great countries of the world, they included uh, in, as countries, countries, Canada, the United States, Chad, whatever. And then also, Niger, yeah, Niger, uh, Iraq. Um, but also, um, major corporations for some reason, like they just <laughs> without explanation, they just added in AT&T, and Westinghouse, and it was very strange. And then they treated them like countries because they reflected this sort of anti-authoritarian, creeping conspiracy theory suspicion of corporatism in the world, which, of course, we now know is completely unfounded. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I discovered in the Book of Lists two, when I was going back and sort of looking at it again while, while considering writing my, my new book, More Information Than You Require, was... Um, they had a list of like four or five ridiculous schemes that never that never worked, including, you know, the famous old saw of um, the CIA trying to kill Castro by by give, you know make, giving him an exploding cigar. And exploding cigar. cigar sure. And so, like, you know that immediately, right? Yeah. And the absolutely. reason you know that is because the I, I venture to say because of the book of lists. The book of lists was such a popular. Book during its time, it was a major national bestseller. It spawned several sequels uh, the people 's Almanac itself, which was the sort of the larger book of lists um, there were five six seven editions they would come out with fifteen hundred pages of all original material every year for several years, and it was like everyone had it in their country house and their their weekend retreat and in their bathroom like and so <laughs> so much of what you consider to be common knowledge, I think because of are where we are in our in our respective generations, and the fact that we had I had fe- I had lived during the 70s, and you sort of that was nostalgia to you, like comes from that. So the fact that you know that I think comes from this part of the Book of Lists. But one thing you might not remember, if I can find it here in my book, because it really bears repeating, is it's the one piece of actual nonfiction in my book. It has to do with I'm sorry. I'm Take surprised that you didn't have this bookmarked. <laughs> on, on other radio shows where they're psychic and they know what I'm going to talk about, mm-hmm. maybe I should look in the table of contents. You'll notice that the table of contents in my book, right at the beginning, you'll notice that the page numbers pick up where the page numbers of the last book left off. So the table of contents starts on page 237. And I am looking for how to buy a computer from a street vendor...
0: Oh, I was just looking at that. Um...
1: Okay, here we are. Page 357. The subject is The Internet, a Series of Tubes. Or, I should say, a fascinating quote that is almost entirely accurate. So, Book of List 2, they had a list called Six Outrageous Plans That Did Not Happen, including this one about Castro's uh, cigar exploding. And then they have this quote. In his book, The Shadow Presidents, author Michael Medved, which is itself weird. <laughs> yes,
0: extremely.
1: <laughs> they were old friends with Michael Medved. The, the David Walachinsky and Michael Medved were old pals, and they would write trivia books together, including this, The Shadow Presidents.
0: That's curious.
1: Um, back when Michael Medved was also anti-authoritarian and was talking about who really holds the power in presidential uh In the White House. So, so Mike Mike Medved relates the extreme disappointment of H.R. Haldeman over his failure to implement his plan to link up all the homes in America by coaxial cable. In Haldeman's words, quote, there would be two way communication through the computer. You could use your television set, through computer, you could use your television set to order up whatever you wanted the morning paper, entertainment services, shopping services, coverage of sporting events. I don't know what those are, public events. Just as Eisenhower linked up the nation's cities by pneumatic tubes—well, I added that part—the Nixon legacy would have linked them by cable communications. One can almost see the dreamy eyes of Nixon and Haldeman as they sat around discussing a plan that would eliminate the need for newspapers, seemingly oblivious to its Big Brother aspects. And fortunately, the Watergate scandal intervened, says the Book of List too, and Nixon was forced to resign before the quote-unquote wired nation could be hooked up. So basically— (laughs) <laughs> this was published in 1976 or 77, and the, and it's basically this huge sigh of relief on the Book of Lists part that the internet was never invented. <laughs> and what's so astonishing is you don't expect H.R. Haldeman, and this is all true, except for the thing I said about pneumatic tubes, but that's an, it's an accurate quote, both of a, a bizarre prophetic prediction on the part of H.R. Haldeman of what the internet would be, and as well a complete missing the point <laughs> you know, their hatred of Nixon was so reflexive at that point that they immediately imagined that only the the worst possible sort of Orwellian aspects of the Internet and not obviously the incredible liberating aspects of the Internet that, that we enjoy today at this very moment while we are podcasting.
0: You've taken some new approaches in the new book. Um, there's more how-to content, for yes. example, in this book. You You just alluded to... Uh, telling people how to purchase a personal computer from a street vendor. From a street
1: vendor. Um, right. it, it's sort of... Uh, and that's based on a story that Jonathan Colton told me, my dear friend, Jonathan. What happened? Well, we both used to live up in the same neighborhood on the Upper West Side, where the people were constantly selling things on the street. Thing By things, I mean garbage. Uh-huh. You know, they would lay out a blanket, which right. itself was garbage, and then they would put old VHS cassettes and books and stuff, and... and and attempt to sell it, and he saw a woman pass by, and she was looking at a a notebook computer of some kind, and it had a huge crack straight down the middle of the screen, and the guy, and Jonathan overheard the guy saying to her, no, 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 it works, it works, it works, you should buy it, it works, all it needs is a program. (laughs) Since
0: since you wrote the book, you've also you, your two children have grown older, and and you even offer you're even kind enough to offer some baby advice in the book to help help people with with their own children what what to do and what not to do uh, with regard to the to the wee ones.
1: Well, you know, a lot of the book actually is inspired by um, you know I, I love books like the Book of Lists um, that are forgotten out of print. You know the kind of literature. I guess they call it ephemera that that isn't kept, you know, by by humans or sort of even in cultural memory. That you've things that huge things like the Book of Lists, for example, which had you know board games associated with it, and I'm and I think a TV show, and now it's lost on most people, you know, who are your age, children like you. Um, and then especially even more obscure stuff like this thing that David Reese found for me. David Reese, the creator, get your war on. Um, the world of wisdom, which was essentially my book, but published in 1850, and <laughs> and you know it had such stuff as you know the lives of the presidents and the diseases of the horse. Do you know what I mean?
0: Like, <laughs> and
1: and it really it, you know the whole idea of complete world knowledge that, that that sort of bold assertion came from that book, which you know had its motto, um, "Look within, and you shall find it." Like that was that was it. And the internet itself was developed by Tim Berners Lee and not the internet, but, you know, the first web browser that he, prototype web browser that he d- designed was called Inquire, E-N-Q-U-I-R-E, and it was named after a similar sort of book of complete world knowledge that had been a staple of every Victorian and and, and on English home called Inquire Within Upon Everything. And it had all sorts of information about how to polish, um, you know, uh, silverware to, you know, appropriate ways to smile. I don't know if that's true.
0: It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. More with our pal John Hodgman when we come back in just a minute on the program. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. If you're inclined to do your giving at the end of the year, consider including MaximumFun.org and The Sound of Young America in your plans. You can pledge to give regularly if you don't already, or you can make a one-time gift. Just click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner of maximumfund.org. Happy Holidays! It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Let's get back to my interview with John Hodgman. His hilarious new book is called "More Information Than You Require." Would you say that you get equal pleasure from uh, a factor that is true uh, relative to a fact that uh, has turned out to be wildly inaccurate?
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know I think I'm like most humans, uh, I enjoy strange facts that are true, uh-huh, um, that seem impossible, like that Haldeman invented the Internet exactly as we imagine, as we enjoy it today.
0: Which is to say nothing of the fact that that was chronicled by Michael Medved.
1: Yeah, which is chronicled by Michael Medved. That is chronicled, but scoffed at. Yes. <laughs> by Michael Medved. Do you know what I mean? Like that to me is marvelous. And um, and yet, uh, you know, I mainly, I only profit by the facts that I invent. Uh-huh. The facts that I invent are imitations of those implausible things.
0: Do you find yourself disappointed when you find something particularly good that's true? Because yes. you would have to change it to use
1: <laughs> it in your book. That was that was a that was a, a big imp, uh, you know impetus for me to write this new book. You know, I I um I had gone I had done the first book and I always wanted to write a second one, but. My life changed rather dramatically after I wrote the first one, you know, and we talked about it last time, how I went on The Daily Show to promote that book. And then suddenly, very unexpectedly, I had a, you know, a, a half a career in television. And that became so distracting and disorienting and nerve wracking that I kind of put the book aside for a while and, and, and had to had to figure out a way to come back to it. And I was nervous about it. I was wondering if I could do it. But then it was Adam Coford, also known as Ape a friend of the show who brought to my attention a product called Dick Van Patton's hobo chili for dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Because I had written so much about hobos of the great depression, you know, (laughs) on the, in the previous book, so people were constantly sending me pictures of a, uh, you know, delis in upstate New York, hobo deli with a picture of a guy with a bindle stick on it. And I've got, uh, you know, 25 cans of hobo soup, which is a a real product fit for a jungle king. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, and and hobo chili for dogs is an actual uh, pet food, and then I looked into it and it wasn't the only <laughs> the only product that he had. He also <laughs> had Irish stew for dogs, um, I, or Irish beef stew for dogs, and Chinese takeout for dogs. And on each of the labels, right, you had a picture of Dick Van Patten dressed up as you know he, he you know he had like sort of a a, a white collar neck crew net you know, Clancy Brothers sweater on the Irish thing and he was wearing some kind of weird Tintin and the Blue Lotus style, (laughs) you know, Chinese garb and he was always pictured and then he had, obviously he was dressed as a hobo and he was always pictured with like a... a, Which,
0: by the way, is roughly equivalent to an ethnicity or nationality.
1: (laughs) Well, I I had to come back, you know, because Dick Van Patten by creating these products that were really jokes that I wish I had written, do you know what I mean? (laughs) And so... Much like when I, you know, wanted to include something from the Church of Satan, you have to go and say, look, here's the joke, and I hope you understand that this is all in good fun. And they completely understood. And they were so sweet about it. And, you know, when you
0: say they, are we talking now about the Dick Van Patten Hobo Chili for Dogs or the Church of Satan?
1: Both. Okay. <laughs> both. Well, Dick, first of all, Dick Van Patten's company is called Natural Balance, and you can Google it and you should look it up. And the the products, as far as I can tell, are really good for dogs and apparently humans. Um, they are like, would you like a picture of Dick as Van As long Patton? as
0: the humans are Irish, Chinese, or hobos. No,
1: no, no. I mean, look, I make fun, but they were really decent about it, and I'm sure it's really high quality, and and I stand behind them. I think anyone who would be... Uh, you now, know. when
0: you say you stand behind them, are you referring to
1: Dick Van Patten's Hobo Chili for Dogs, or the Church of Satan? Now, the Church of Satan, I, I keep it more of a, uh, a sort of, not at arm's length, more sort of like a, a pan-hoof-length distance. Yes. <laughs> No, they've been they've been great, actually. <laughs> they, I really, you know, because first of all, Church of Satan, I wanted to include in my first book a picture of Anton LaVey. Um, I had a whole joke that involved all of the conspiracy theories about the layout of Washington, D.C., and how you could see secret Masonic symbols and the street patterns from different heights. And then my joke was, if you go, if you look at Washington, D.C. from space, it looks like the the picture of Anton LaVey, you know, looks like founder of the Church of Satan. And I wanted to include this, and so I had to contact them. Did I tell you the story before? No. Oh. Not at all. I'm glad that I have this chance. Great. Um, uh, I had to contact them, and of course I went to their website. And uh, they have a, a website and email.
0: Satan.org?
1: No, I think it's churchofsatan.com. Okay. I mean, you have to understand, the Church of Satan as. Uh, as devised by Anton levey was ne- it's not a Satan. They do not worship s- Satan per se. They are not a coven of witches in the Dakota. You know what I mean? Who are trying to summon up spirits? It is. I more... had
0: presumed they were some sort of coven of witches in the Dakota.
1: No, understandably, it is more of a sort of um, self determination anti authoritarian cult sort of feeling. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like uh, Ayn Randian objectivism with uh, funny goat masks. Do you know? It's like, do you know. The, of course. It, it, is a, it is a rejection of m- sort of what they consider to be hypocritical moralism uh, of churches. And instead, they have, um, the, my understanding is they have sex with each other and don't feel bad about it. Okay. Which, you know. Gotcha um but i don't speak for them i am i am but a, an observer and so i i contacted them without fear that they were going to uh, uh try to impregnate, impregnate me with satan's child
0: or send you to the dakota
1: for example and um and and they wrote back they said well um they got back to me very fast too they said well we 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 do have an image that you could use but um we need to ask why you want to use it and it's perfectly reasonable and at that point i sort of like there's nothing much to do but just show them, you know, so I sent them that whole chapter and I said, I hope I hope you understand what I'm getting at here. And they sent back a letter immediately saying, indeed, we appreciate your sense of humor. And um, we think it would be really funny to include this picture. And so here is a high res image of it. Um, best wishes for bringing more laughter into the world, signed Peter H. Gilmore, High Magus Church of Satan are a class act, as it turns out. I was like, you know, that's that was my first blurb, actually, on my book. Best wishes for bringing more laughter into the world. Peter H. Gilmore, High Magus Church of Satan. It couldn't have been more perfect.
0: So we should add them to the class act list alongside uh, Dick Van Patten.
1: I'm and, not sure that Dick Van Patten
0: would appreciate it. And his
1: ethnic dogs. People, you know, it's uh, the fun, of course, is of doing these books is getting the chance to, you know, be playful and have fun with people. And it's the same thing as the book of lists saying, why don't you send in your own lists, you know, to be able to reach out and and draw people into the game, people who you would never expect in a million years would, would want to be a part of the game and and who you hope really just sort of understand the game. Um, And that is, that is the kind of interaction with uh, a readership and with an outside world Um, that I loved, whether it was in the book of lists or that kind of playfulness that you would find in a Borges story, you know, as opposed to just a, a dead object that you were supposed to worship, you were being asked to interact with with the work itself.
0: Did you also reach out to uh, the Borges? Living, no, I the, the living presidents with whom, uh, about whom you wrote, or the descendants of the presidents whose, no. whose biographies you track in the book.
1: No, yeah, I was. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but um, this was an election year. <laughs> and so, you know, I had done the thing in the first book about the nine presidents who had hooks for hands, and that was really my sort of first time I awakened to the idea that, you know, the presidency is sort of the most secret, secret society of all time. You know, in in 200-plus uh, years, there have only been 43 and now 44 um, men, uh, in this case, who have ever known what it is to be the president, and that's—they uh, become—like— you leave reality at that point you are in your own world and very few people who are alive understand you at all and i think that that was really interesting to me so i was very excited to go back and talk about all the presidents and and their bizarre eccentricities and most of the time it was just hard to find something that wasn't true <laughs> you know <laughs> what anyway what did you find that was true um well, Woodrow t- Wilson you know Woodrow Wilson had a terrible stroke and was basically incapacitated for towards the end of his administration. And his wife took over. And a lot of people thought she was running the government herself. Her Her position was that she would go meet with the cabinet, take their advice, go into a room that had Woodrow Wilson in it. She was the only one who was allowed to speak to him. And then she would come out of that room With the presidential orders and this was kind of controversial (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine yeah and um, and it's hard to uh, it's hard you know and it's hard to improve upon the strangeness of that as indeed it's hard to improve upon the you know the eccentricity of presidents like Jimmy Carter who you know walked to his own inauguration you know, which seems like such a bold, um, sort of symbolic thing to do, and, and you almost can't believe that it happened. Um, just as you know, this election itself is just so novelistic in the in the course it took and the people involved. It's operatic. You know, it's hard to believe that it's not fiction.
0: Did you find- Jimmy
1: Carter also? You know, he, he walked most of the way, and then he somersaulted the rest of the way, which was right. considered to be eccentric.
0: <laughs> yeah. Did you find the same problem in developing uh, developing flourishes to add to the real historical record when you were writing about uh, the mole men that live at the center of the earth, or below the earth's crust, I should say?
1: Yeah, the mole men who live underneath the earth were a passing joke that I made in the first book. When I was writing about all 51 American states, I had to come up with something for Virginia. And so I sort of claimed that Virginia had first been settled by the mole men who live within the earth when they briefly established a surface empire that they called the Old Dominion. And uh, some aspects of their culture still remain in the mole palace of Monticello and the um, and the t- typical Virginian habit of people greeting each other by hissing and feeling each other's faces. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was such a cute laugh. Thank you. I like that very much. So and then I said I'll tell you more about the mole men later, and I knew that I would have to fulfill that promise. So I end up telling a lot more about the mole men. I think that anyone really needs to know,
0: as well as the things like the uh, the mole men's natural enemy, the earth puma, dirt puma, dirt puma. Excuse
1: me. Dirt, the dirt puma is actually one of their hideous steeds.
0: <laughs> excuse me,
1: <laughs> I didn't mean to mischaracterize the dirt puma. People wonder how the mole men move around underneath the earth. I'm not just
0: trying to paint broad strokes here and offend people like a Dick Van Patten might.
1: Right. Uh, uh, uh,
0: Let's be specific. It is one of its hideous states.
1: Yes, they they employ you know giant giant worms and uh, you know the pseudosaurs, which are not uh, not actual dinosaurs, but uh, but um, iguanas that they have inflated to gigantic size and pasted things on to make them look like dinosaurs. (laughs) <laughs> and the dirt and the dirt puma and uh, and other denizens of the deep, the pukas and the Clydesdales, they're all the hideous steeds of the mole men. But the mole men, right, right from the beginning, right from that Virginia idea, I realized that they were the opposite of what the hobos of the Great Depression were, as I imagined them. In the first book, the hobos of the Great Depression were agents of chaos. They were rejecting American society, as indeed, you know, hobos in real in real history did in it was very problematic because a lot of people, including Roosevelt, worried that the, this tide of vagrancy, you know, volunteer vagrancy, was going to completely destabilize the middle class in the United States. And that's why he attempted to kill them with polio. Ha ha. That was the joke that launched mm-hmm. a television career for me. Great. Very cruel joke. <laughs> <sighs> but, but the, the moment... What, man, you're, the what man, you're saying, the,
0: to, to summarize, is that under the uh, under the earth's surface uh rails ride you <laughs>
1: well yes they are they are the anti the uh, antipodal figures you know literally standing underneath you know opposite the hobos, in that the mole men while they are hideous and disgusting and they spit acid and they secrete a luminous mucus, they also wear powdered wigs and think beautiful thoughts and are the source of sort of the commitment to reason and rationality that we call the Enlightenment. And so um, I imagined them as being these gross naked mole rats that also taught Jefferson how to write Declarations of Independence and served as Rousseau's the model for Rousseau's noble savage. You know.
0: um, are you looking forward now to the third and final volume in your series? Have you uh, imagined ways to um to complete complete world knowledge
1: no i mean i'm looking forward to it only in so far as i don't know how i'm going to approach it at all i mean the 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 sort of looseness uh in structure of the first book and the second were designed to um facilitate my inability to write longer than maybe two or three incomplete sentences at a time uh-huh are, you know, and the the short form stuff that I like to write, and also the really um, uh, sort of perilously diverse interests and enthusiasms that I have. And as you can see, just by talking to me, I'll often go on you know a, a jag about the Book of Lists for like an hour to everyone's annoyance. And we then... once
0: had a very
1: intense discussion about Jumbo the elephant. Yeah. I had no
0: idea that the word jumbo didn't exist before the elephant.
1: Yeah, jumbo. That was another. Yeah, jumbo the elephant. Oh, what a sad story. Jumbo had been had been brought. They he was he had become a circus elephant, given the name Jumbo, in in England originally, um, because it was a corruption of a Swahili word meaning I don't know gigantic elephant. And then he was bought by Barnum, and then he was hit by a train and killed. Uh, The legend has it, he was trying to save a smaller elephant. (laughs) And then he was stuffed and on display at Tufts University, uh, whose whose, um, uh, mascot became Jumbo. I mean, the the team is still called the Jumbos today, which I think brings Tufts Universitarians a lot of shame.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you're talking to a guy who went to UC Santa Cruz, home of the banana
1: slugs. So you can't really top that. And then Jumbo, in a final indignity, uh, the library in which Jumbo was uh, being displayed, burned in a fire. And Jumbo was destroyed yet again. And it, it is the legend is that his remains are in a coffee can somewhere in the, the gymnasium someplace.
0: It sounds to me like there are more depths of world knowledge which you can
1: plumb. Well, there are obviously lots of non-sports knowledge that I can look into and... and <laughs> <laughs> but, But, what I mean to say is that I reserve for the books because they 're just sort of like catch all and I can turn to any topic I want at any time. there is no expectation of um, uh, of a through line, and yet, I hope to some degree one uh, one emerges even if it 's only a portrait of my own sort of derangement um, i I sort of reserve the right to to just do whatever I feel is necessary in the book and and what I want to do, and to follow those enthusiasms and. You know, there's a, there's a lot of difference between the first book and the second. I started out writing the second book very much sort of in the same vein. It's like, all right, what's who are the no who are what are the new hobos? Is it the mole men or the presidents? What's uh, what's the new nine presidents who had nine presidents who had hooks for hands? Do you know what I mean? And I found it very very hard to to tell those jokes and get back into that voice again because I had been writing for the Daily Show for a long time. I thought that really wasn't the problem and the problem was that I wasn't acknowledging that I was telling jokes from a completely different place now where I was writing before as sort of um a, 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 a desperate uh uh freelance writer um who you know who could make a joke about the glamorous life of a freelance writer you know and that becomes a joke because there's nothing glamorous about freelance writing you know you you can you're very poor you don't own your own pants you rent all your clothing you know that sort of thing um, now my life had begun to be very weird and glamorous and, and unexpected in ways and implausible in ways that, um, made it hard to make a joke. You know, I couldn't make a joke about, um, I'm a former professional literary agent who lives in an observatory on the Upper West Side. The reality of my life was getting was was getting after, stranger than that.
0: After you bought the observatory,
1: yeah. well, there was no observatory. Do you know what I mean? That was an exaggeration. But I do now live in a, you know, a utopian commune that is ruled by children called Park Slope, Brooklyn.
0: <laughs>
1: but you know, I made a joke in the first book about the cameo appearances that I would have made in movies. Do you know what I mean? And that was hilarious because that was never going to happen in my life. And yet, I guess on some level, I wished that it would, and then it ended up happening. You know, and I started showing up as the guy wearing glasses sitting behind a desk uh, in, you know, in Baby Mama or the Flight of the Concords. And it was really when I was doing Baby Mama that it sunk in. And that was a year after I would already been on the in the ads for Apple Computer and The Daily Show. I was comfortable in this new life, but I was still trying to write jokes as though I was a former professional literary agent. And the the irony or the, the, the sort of the echo of sitting there doing a cameo in a movie when I had made a joke about it didn't hit me for a long time. And I realized that I have to tell this book from that perspective. And so that ends up affecting a lot of the book in terms of, you know, acknowledging the change in my life in a way that I was a little embarrassed to acknowledge it before. So I think the third book, when I write it, will have to similarly be sort of determined by my circumstances then, and I suspect those circumstances will be a, a once famous minor television personality now, now has been, who desperately has to write another book of fake trivia in order to remain real, relevant in the world. Uh, John, thank you so much for being on the show. All right, thank you, Jesse.
0: John Hodgman's new book, even more hilarious than the last, is More Information Than You Require. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking into Microphones, our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show edited by Nick White. Our intern is Casey O'Brien. We're still accepting internship applications for the spring semester, by the way. If you'd like to apply, visit MaximumFun.org, click on About, and scroll down to the internship information. For our listeners in the United States, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week on the Sound of Young America.